Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good 
evening and welcome to Wisdom Walk Talk here on Black Hole Radio and my YouTube channel, Wisdom Walk to Self Mastery. I am your hosting guide, Jojapa Maria and Saroma. And as always, I am going to start us off by honoring the ancestors. First, a shout out to my two teachers, Mali Doma and Sabonfu Somme from Burkina Faso, land of the proud ancestors who are my ancestors now, both of them. And I'm going to invite you to think about and acknowledge those whose shoulders you are standing on, those who came before you, as we invoke them, invoke their presence, invoke their energy to help us navigate through this dark age of modernity. And here we go. Creator, Mother, Father, God, source, all the one that all that is. May the ancestors hear our prayers. Ancestors, 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 we call out to you during this first quarter of 2024 and ask you to enable us to begin living our personal renaissance in earnest by remembering and enacting upon our higher purposes during this auspicious and landmark mineral year. Give us the strength and the courage to continue to accept and embrace this new age and new earth consciousness. Grant us access to our higher timeline where we know that what we seek is seeking us. Enable us to dare greatly to live out our new narratives and knowing that these are divinely descriptive for ourselves and for our world. And most importantly, continue to enable us to move forth from the dark ages of modernity by placing our heads below our hearts, valuing people over profits, and always choosing love over fear. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. So it is. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. So again, good evening. And uh, to all you wisdom walkers out there, want to be wisdom walkers, going to be wisdom walkers, haven't been wisdom walkers yet, but are, are getting ready. And, you know, wisdom walking is about what? Yeah, it's about being committed to self-mastery. Absolutely. So February is the first of three months in this landmark mineral year of 2024 that will support personal change from the inside out. 2024 is also the year of the dragon in Chinese astrology, which is coming up very soon, considered one of the luckiest years for forward movement, both personally and professionally. And this aligns with the numerology of the year, the cosmic eight, as it is associated with success, achievement, and abundance. My theme for 2024 is what you seek is seeking you, and the theme for February is heal. And it's one of the five collective commitments I'll be spilling on all throughout this year. Thank you for joining me as I share my insights, my wisdom, and guidance for healing and personal development to allow your dreams to come true. But first, for those of you who are listening through the broadcast podcast, if you have any problem, any disconnect with your internet connection, here's a phone number that you can use to still listen in. It is area code 563 
563-999-3089. Again, that's 563-999-3089. Also, if you have any questions or comments that you have for me, if you're listening in through the broadcast, you can do that on my Facebook page, which is Wisdom Walk Radio, or my Facebook group, Wisdom Walk Community, which you're welcome to join. You can also go to my website, which is www.wisdomwalk2selfmastery.com, and you can always go to my YouTube channel and leave comments in the section, the comment section below the video. But right now, I ask and thank you for sitting or laying back, joining me in this exploration of the inner landscape where we can connect to our souls and discover the true treasure of being human. So here's my overview for this evening. I am going to first start off with a black history moment, and then I'm going to talk about historical trauma and its impact, and then I'll give you a personal growth opportunity for identifying what is ready to heal. Yes. My quote for the month is from the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who's a PhD. And Martin said, the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of love that can transform opponents into friends. It is this type of understanding of goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of old age into exuberant gladness of new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Dear Martin. So we are in a mineral year, folks. And the focus is definitely on us getting realigned or back in line or even strengthened if we're already in alignment with our purpose, with our higher purpose. And it's also about connecting, connecting to people's souls. Yeah, opening ourselves up for that, more of that, really important. Happy Chinese New Year's comes up on the 10th and um, It will go until about the 17th, yeah. And it is a green dragon wood year, which is really, really very vicious and powerful for those who, like me, love the Chinese astrology and, of course, for people who practice practice these, these beliefs and these celebrations. So I'm very much looking forward to what this year has for us. I um, did mention in my previous videos about some dragon movies that I recommend. Um, Last time I left off Rhea, the Disney movie, um, and The Last Dragon. But I will, in the description box below my YouTube video, give you that list again so that you can refer to it more easily. And again, we are in a number eight year, and eight symbolizes very, very important and powerful things, including infinity and the cycle the cycle of life and our evolution. Yeah. Of course, it's also connected to prosperity. And my theme for 2024 is what you seek is seeking you, which, of course, is a quote that comes from Rumi. 
Yeah. So the theme for February, the annual commitment is heal, and it's specifically about healing the ancestral wounds. The ancestors don't need you to repeat their journey. They want you to heal from it. So this year we are being more strongly than ever to heal ancestral wounds of what was done to oppress, marginalize, stereotype, and villainize people. Yeah, and I need to correct this. I apologize again. I feel like it's about we're being more strongly called than ever. Yeah, I will do that, definitely. So let me give you a black history moment. Let me tell you about James Weldon Johnson. Yeah, this genius of a man who was born in Jacksonville, Florida, in June of 1871. So that is only six years after the end of the Civil War. So he was born during the Reconstruction period. And he lived until 1938. Now he's most remembered as one of the most important writers, one of the, one of the important writers during the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, and as a civil rights activist whose leadership as a national organizer for the NAACP, which means the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, um, he greatly expanded membership around the country and its influence. But he accomplished even more than that. So I want to share with you some of the highlights of James Weldon Johnson. Again, he was born in Jacksonville, Florida. He was the son of James Johnson, who was a preacher and the head waiter at the St. James Hotel. It was a luxury establishment built when Jacksonville was one of Florida's first winter resort destinations for the wealthy, of course. Now, his mother was Helen Louise DeLay, a native of Nassau and Bahamas, and she was a musician and a public school teacher. So you see, he came from a very kind of cultured um, family, even though it's only six years after um, the Civil War that he is born. You know, his parents were in a place where they could provide him with support and with education, which is exactly what happened. So after graduating from Atlanta University, he and his brother Rosamund, his younger brother, they moved to New York City as young men, joining the great migration out of the South in the first half of the 20th century that happened, of course. And they collaborated on songwriting and achieved some success on Broadway in the early 1900s. And a lot of people don't know that, but there was a very powerful and noted strong black presence on Broadway, yeah. So he actually had an education and a law career. He was a teacher who became a principal at age 35 in 1906. Um, while working as a teacher, he also read the law and prepared for the Florida Bar. And in 1897, he was the first African-American admitted to the Florida Bar exam since the Reconstruction era ended. And he was also the first black in Duval County, Florida, to seek admission to the state bar. In order to be accepted, he had to have a two-hour oral examination before three attorneys and a judge. And there is a, a story about how one of the examiners actually walks out of the room because they are so opposed to a black person 
becoming a lawyer. Now, he didn't stop there. He was also a diplomat. He got appointed under President Theodore Roosevelt as U.S. counsel in Venezuela and Nicaragua for most of the period from 1906 to 1913. Yeah, interesting. Now, in 1910, he was married to artist, creative, and civil rights activist. Her name was Grace Nail Johnson. You can see her in the picture here to, to, his, to his right, if you're looking at it. A cultured, well-educated New Yorker whose father was a wealthy businessman. Now, through Grace, he got connected to the NAACP, where he started working in 1917 until 1930. His 1920 report about the economic corruption, forced labor, press censorship, racial segregation, and wanton violence introduced to Haiti by the U.S. occupation encouraged numerous African Americans to flood the State Department and the offices of the Republican Party officials with letters calling for an end to the abuses and to remove the troops. So he did that report in 1920, but it took until 1934 for the U.S. to end its occupation of Haiti, 16 years after the threat of Germany in that era, our area had been ended by the First World War. So a lot of people don't know that history. They don't know that the U.S. was occupying Haiti and doing typical degenerative American-type things, yeah, including the segregation, upholding segregation. In somebody's own country, can you imagine that? Yeah, yeah, just crazy. But also, he is very much noted for his military writings. He, his first success as the, was the writer of the poem called Lift Every Voice and Sing, which was done to honor um, another important African-American leader in education. And his brother set this piece to music, which became the, began to be known unofficially at, at first as the Negro National Anthem. And then it really did get that, because I remember my mother would sing it. We had the, the sheet music for it, and she would talk to us about it, because that's what they sang in school, yeah. In 1922, he published a landmark anthology, The Book of American Negro Poetry, with a preface that celebrated the power of black expressive culture. He compiled and edited the anthology, The Book of American Negro Spirituals, which was published in 1925. And his collection, God's Trombone, Seven Negro Sermons in Verse, in 1927, is considered his most important piece. He demonstrated that black folk life could be the material of serious poetry. In 1930, he published a psychological study called Black Manhattan. So, you know, he's just, just absolutely genius and amazing. Now, in 1930, at the age of 59, he joined, he returned to education after his many years leading the NAACP, and he accepted the, a chair, as they call it, of creative literature at Fisk University, one of the most famous historical black universities, which is in Tennessee, in Nashville. And he held that position until his death in 1938. 
1934, interesting, four years before he died, he was appointed as the first African-American professor at New York University, where he taught several classes in literature and culture. Now, very tragically, James Weldon Johnson died in 1938 while vacationing in Maine when the car his wife was driving was hit by a train. She was injured badly, but she did survive. His funeral was in Harlem, and it was attended by more than 1,000 people. And he still um, is connected to New York because his ashes are in the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. And so I want to just share with you to close this out about the great James Weldon Johnson, a poem that he wrote that was in that anthology of God's trombones called The Creation. And I can remember when my mother first shared it with me and my brother and sister. And to this day, it is so powerful and so special to me. So I just want to read you the last three stanzas, really four stanzas of this beautiful, beautiful poem that he wrote. And it starts off in the beginning talking about how God was sitting around and wanting something to do, and he decides, you know what, I think I'll make something. And he makes the earth. So here we are at this point. Then God walked around and God looked around on all that he had made. He looked at his sun and he looked at his moon and he looked at his little stars. He looked on his world with all its living things. And God said, I'm lonely still. Then God sat down on the side of a hill where he could think. By a deep, wide river, he sat down. With his head in his hands, God thought and thought till he thought, I'll make me a man. Up from the bed of the river, God scooped the clay. And by the bank of the river, he kneeled him down. And there the great God Almighty who lit the sun and fixed it in the sky, who flung the stars to the most far corner of the night, who rounded the earth in the middle of his hand, this great God, like a mammy bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, toiling over a lump of clay, till he shaped it in his own image. Then he blew the breath, and then into it he blew the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Amen. Amen. Yes, yes, yes. Ah, so beautiful, so powerful. And what I love about James Bolden Johnson is despite how very educated he was, how high up in society, black society in Harlem he was. He was so devoted to maintaining black culture and black speech. So in his poems, you know, like he says, a mammy laying over her, over her baby, leaning over her baby. This is what God was doing. He always found words to insert black culture and black expression into his work, you know. It's just really beautiful, absolutely. So Google, look up some more information about James Weldon Johnson. And, uh, yeah, a very wonderful way to celebrate the ancestors and to keep it going. 
So I've got some comments here that I'm going to share before I dive into historical trauma. Ah, there is Miss Carmen Ray. Greetings from Mesa, Arizona. Woohoo! And she also met the Lift Every Voice. Yes, very, very powerful. Yeah. I should do a show just about, um, you know, the black family culture that I grew up in. And, you know, my mother went to segregated school um, from elementary into high school. There was only one high school in Wilmington, Delaware, for black people called Howard High. And the stories that she shared and about, you know, how they learned black history and they learned all cultures, culture from around the world. She was so, she was much more um, educated than I was (laughs) going to New York City Public School. She knew so much more. So, yeah, it's really, really cool. So let us now dive into historical trauma because, you know, at the time that James Weldon Johnson was doing all of these great things, right, a diplomat, a lawyer, a teacher, the leader of NAACP, and I was all this, and doing stuff on Broadway, writing songs with his brother, you know, poetry up the kazoo. Um, this was not an easy time to be black in America by any stretch of the word. Um, you know, NAACP's job was to help to really get some laws on the books that, so they could stop the lynching because lynchings were going on, especially, you know, in the late 20s into the 30s. It was really bad. Um, and so this was not an easy time to be black. You couldn't really go wherever you wanted and do whatever you do because there could be some really bad consequences. Um, So the fact that he was able to accomplish as much as he did under such an oppressed time, um, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And, um, you know, when you see a lot of the pictures of him, you're not going to see him smiling. Yeah. I think I found maybe one picture where he had a smile. No, no, I didn't. I'm thinking of somebody else. Yeah, you don't see any pictures of him smiling. So that's an indication of, you know, all of the pain to that he was carrying, emotional pain, despite, you know, um, all of what he accomplished. It was still a lot to navigate through. So I'm going to share with you some information that I use when I'm, I'm doing workshops and I'm teaching that I think will give us an overview about historical trauma and its impact. So here's some key concepts about it. Historical trauma is intergenerational trauma experienced by a specific cultural group that has a history of being systematically oppressed. And, of course, we think about um, First Nations people, Native Americans. We think, of course, about black people with slavery. We also think about, um, you know, um, Jews who not only suffered the Holocaust, but if you know some of the history of the Jews, they had really um, been, you know, persecuted during the evil times as well. I mean, it, this, that wasn't the first time at the rodeo for them. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of historical trauma that has gone on. And also, um, you know, historical trauma is for people who are different in society, like people who have disabilities or, you know, I, I don't like the word disability. It's more about physical um, you know, mental, sensory challenges, um, you know, lots and lots of trauma there, too. So it's an example. And then, of course, you know, everybody's come to the United States. Um, uh, people who were already here, too, like the Mexicans, um, 
you know, the Chinese when they came over, what they went through. So, yeah, it's and, of course, the Japanese during World War II that were here, Japanese-Americans that got put into concentration camps, yeah, all of that. So the current lifespan trauma superimposed upon a traumatic ancestral past creates additional adversity. I'll repeat that. Current lifespan trauma superimposed upon a traumatic ancestral past creates additional adversity. Historical trauma can be an impact on psychological, can have an impact on psychological and physical health. Historical trauma is cumulative. That means it gathers weight and reverberates across generations. Descendants who have not directly experienced the traumatic event can exhibit the signs and symptoms of the trauma, such as depression, fixation on trauma, low self-esteem, anger, and self-destructive behaviors. This is Dr. Mary Yellowhorse Braveheart of the Lakota Sioux, and she is very, very instrumental and noted for helping to coin that phrase of historical trauma. And her focus, of course, is on the impact that genocide had on Native Americans and, of course, also being put onto reservations. And she says, in internalization of ancestral suffering, we are carrying the suffering with us. We carry it inside of us. It becomes part of us. Vitality in one's own life is seen as a betrayal of ancestors who suffered so much. It's hard for us to be joyful in our own lives and really free and happy. That's what we want to get back to. That's part of transcending the trauma and the healing process. And Mary Yellowhorse Braveheart was one of the first persons I'd ever heard talk about that condition where getting beyond, going beyond what the ancestors got up to or what they did would seem like a betrayal. He's the first person I heard talk of that, and boy, is that really a really powerful condition. Very unconscious, of course, you're not saying it out loud, but there's something inside of us that will hold us back. Yeah, you know, this is also called survivor syndrome. And then there's Dr. Joy DeGruy, and she's the one who coined this phrase, post-traumatic slave syndrome. And as she says here, it's a condition that exists when a population has experienced multi-generational trauma resulting from centuries of slavery and continues to experience oppression and institutionalized racism today. Added to this condition is a belief, real or imagined, that the benefits of the society in which they live are not accessible to them. Yeah. Very powerful. Dr. Joy is something else. And there's a book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. If you didn't know that, you can get it. She breaks things down. She has some workbook stuff. Oh, she on it. She's serious. A lot of videos of her on YouTube um, that you can find her doing some more talking about this because it's really powerful. Her research has been really, really powerful. Very helpful. So, again, just this reminder of the impact of historical trauma on health and wellness low self-esteem, depression, self-destructive behavior, propensity for violent or aggressive behavior, substance misuse and addiction, high rates of suicide, 
cardiovascular disease. And I would also add to that diabetes, a liver failure, you know, yet so much of what we call these chronic diseases that are seen in oppressed populations, um, yeah, it definitely is coming out of historical trauma. Absolutely. Acute problems of domestic violence or alcohol misuse that are not directly linked to historical trauma may be exasperated by living in a community with unaddressed grief and behavioral health needs. The grief piece is so huge because when you're just in survival mode, you really don't have the safety or the time or the support to do grief. And grief is what? Grief is feeling the pain and releasing it. Yeah, through tears and crying and rocking, pulling your hair out. Yeah. Um, so if you're in survival mode, you don't have time to do that. And again, as it says here, that grief that is not released will, you know, transform into these kinds of violent behaviors and also, you know, unhealthy behaviors. Also, parents' experience of trauma may disrupt typical parenting skills and contribute to behavior problems in children. Yeah, very much so. Compounding this familial or intergenerational trauma, historical trauma often involves the additional challenge of a damaged cultural identity. Yeah. Woo! Yeah, folks. It's a lot, but it's important that we understand the long-term connection to things that may be happening for us in the present that don't seem rational, that, you know, for example, you know, um, we do all the right things, we make all the right moves, but yet we keep hitting up against a brick wall, whether we're sabotaging ourselves or we're calling in victim, victim situations and victimizing people. Um, it's like, I can't, I can't get forward. I can't move forward. Like, what's going on? Well, there's some pain inside of you that is screaming to get released, calling out to get released. So when we're feeling stuck, when we're feeling like this isn't rational, it shouldn't be happening, or we're stuck in a, a situation like a relationship where, or relationships where we find the same pattern over and over and over again, yeah, this stuff is not just from your lifetime. This is going back to the historical trauma, yeah. And those ancestral wounds that occur from that get passed down. In the DNA, it's been scientifically, scientifically proven. Um, so um, it's real. It's real, folks. This is not made up. It is really real, yeah. Ah, oh, my friend, this is someone from London saying, hello, lovely. Let me see if I can do a British accent. Listening in bed in London, darling. Good night. <laughs> That's Magella. She's amazing. Thank you for tuning in, Magella. Love you. Who else do I have? I've got Priya on tonight. She says, tonight's show is so timely. I see the impacts of historical trauma in my local community all the time. I live in the Bronx. And the unaddressed grief is palpable. 
Yes, Priya. Absolutely, girl. You know, because, you know, I grew up in New York City, so I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have some friends up in the South Bronx, so it ain't no joke. Hector. Hey, Hector. Hector Del Campo says, loss can help to get those barriers presented all at the same time. Yes, absolutely. You get activated, and we call it trigger too, but if you know, if you've gone through it before, I call it an activation, get reactivated by, you know, these pains that come up. So this is real for us, and it's really important that we are taking the time and opening ourselves up to learning, what do I do with this? Because as I've been talking about, the ancestors want us to win. They want us to go beyond what they got to. So they don't need us imitating their journey. They don't need us stopping ourselves because, oh, they had it so hard. No. You know, like these pictures that I found, not found, I made them with E, which is from the, you know, AI generator. Uh, it did a great job, I think, because it's really showing what I wanted, which is here are the ancestors in their paradise, and they holding hands and talking and saying, yeah, what are we going to do to help those folks that we left behind? How are we going to help them really grow and heal and come together the way that we are able to in the land of the ancestors? Yeah. Because that's what it's about. You know, we got to move on. And I love this picture it generated because this is what it's about. You know, here we are in the modern times and saying, help, help me, ancestors, help me. I want to go forward. I want to move beyond. I need your help. And they are all smiling and saying, we got you. We got you. Yeah. I just love that. Love, love it. So I would like to give you a personal growth opportunity to support you in beginning to really take on this healing from ancestral wounds. It is not an event, okay? It is a wisdom walk. It is something we set an intention on. It's something we open ourselves up to, and we accept it as a lifelong journey. I have been healing ancestral wounds consciously, probably been doing it my whole life, but I've been consciously doing it since, um, the, the late 90s, and so it's been over 20 years, and um, I can tell you it really is very beneficial, very beneficial to take on this work, and most importantly is that you can do it. The other great thing about taking on healing the ancestral wounds, because we're connected in our family, so if you take on healing the wounds, it's going to touch every member of your family, whether they're consciously doing it or not. And it opens, it sends a wave, it's a domino effect, like a wave goes out. And so more people in the family begin to say, yeah, I want to take on healing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Got another comment here. Oh, from Deborah. Deborah Nevels. I love you. Thanks for reaching out. She says, wisdom walks are incredible, and everyone needs to do it on repeat. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I know it has changed my life. It's benefited my life so much, and um, I do. I, I know it works, and I know that 
you can do it. And what's so great is it's, it's unique to you. There's no prescription. I'm just going to give you guidance, but you get to figure it out. For some people, actually researching their ancestors is what really does it, you know, which really breaks things open because they start to learn some stories they couldn't have imagined, you know. Yeah. And Carmen Ray says, yes, hashtag team wisdom walk. That's right. We on, we on the team. We walk in this wisdom. <laughs> so here's my contemplative questions for you for the next two weeks. What are the relationship, health, work, and financial challenges that are similar among members of your family, adopted or extended? Because if you don't have siblings, you do have friends, you know, if you were adopted, then you use your adopted family. Whoever you grew up around, um, that's what you want to look for. What are those challenges? What illnesses run in the family? Because that's what we say, like, diabetes runs in my family. You know, um, kidney failure runs in my family. What are the diseases that run in your family? Look at that. Next, which of these challenges can you relate to? And relating to them doesn't mean that you have them. It's just going to be something about it that touches you. For example, diabetes run in my family. And my grandmother got it when I was, in, uh, when I was a teenager. And I started then to let go of overusing salt and, and trying to cut back on the sugar as best I could. Um, but it was something about that that touched me, and I was like, I don't want to get this. I do not want to do that. So that's what I mean by relating. It can be what you don't want, you know. And then number four is in what ways are you imitating behaviors and beliefs of the generation before you that don't work anymore? And that's a really powerful one because that's another way we stay loyal to the ancestors unconsciously is that we'll imitate their lifestyle and their challenges. Like life will be about suffering and struggling. My mother grew up during depression and war, right? So you're struggling and suffering. And I found when I was in my 20s and early 30s that that's what I was doing. I was living that belief system. Yeah, you know I had to turn that around. I had to figure, <laughs> I had to figure out quick how to turn that around. So, again, I'll leave these in the description box below the YouTube video. I will post them on the Wisdom Walk community. And, um, yeah, that's the first part. And then when I come back for the next live broadcast in two weeks, I will then share with you some of the ways in which we actually take on healing those ancestral wounds. Yeah. That is Daughter Voshun, Anika Leonard's comment is these are some intense, absolutely, absolutely, and you know it, darling, you know it. So, we made it through, we made it through. You know, this is something we don't talk about every day. This is is a courageous conversation that we're having because this is painful, you know, just even thinking about it, thinking about ancestral and historical trauma is painful. So I want you to take care of yourself after you listen to this broadcast. I want you to drink some water. It's like this. I'm doing some now myself. Mm -hmm. I want you to be calm. You know, don't watch anything that's going to mess with your nervous system. Just give yourself a chill. You know, listen to some meditation music maybe or something sweet, something in the Schumann resonance. 
you know, matches the heartbeat of the earth so that you can just keep yourself still. But know that this is triggering and this is, this is definitely activating the, having this conversation. I believe that the third generation that comes after us will have much easier time to be talking about these things, dealing with these things. We are among the first generations to take this on. So that's why it really is challenging. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some more comments. Facebook user says, thank you, Joe Oh, my God, you are so, so welcome. Yeah, Anika says, questions. Yeah. Hector says, thank you for this challenge. You got it. Another Facebook user with hearts and praying hands. Thank you, thank you. Priya says, it is. Thank you for sharing these reflection questions. Absolutely. Wonderful. Wonderful. So, closing out, as always, I want to thank my wonderful engineer, It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.